You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, this is Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. And I'm here with Michael Arena, who is the VP of Talent and Development, is that right, at AWS, and used to head up uh, talent at General Motors. And as the author, which is why you're here, Michael, is because you're the author of this fantastic book called Adaptive Space, which really took the HR world by storm, I think, a couple of years ago. And it was really on everybody's lips. And it's really been super influential. And I highly recommend it for anybody in kind of the world of HR or thinking about innovation. So welcome, Michael. Thanks, Greg. Looking forward to our conversation. So first thing I want to ask is, what is adaptive space because i think when people they see the title and they haven't picked up the book and they haven't read it they think wait is this like a a new room that i have to build in my office is this a place where we're gonna go and get some coffee you know what exactly is this adaptive space metaphorically it's amazing how often i've had to get past this notion that it's a physical space adaptive space is really first of all it's manifested after about a decade of research on this core topic of why are some companies adaptive and others aren't and what we recognize is it's about the, the space. It's really relational and emotional and sometimes physical space that you create inside of organizations for ideas to flow freely and for people to have the degree of freedom to really drive adaptation inside of organizations. So there are times where it's about physical space in today's world, that's less and less true, but it's much more about the space to be able to connect with people inside your team or across teams and really the safety necessary or the degree of freedom necessary for people to explore new concepts and new ideas. I think you called it a free trade zone for ideas. Yes, exactly. You know, it's this free trade zone. Like so frequently inside of businesses, we're all confined to the thing that we're working on right now, what we got to deliver this week or next month. This provides adaptive space, provides a degree of freedom to do some free trade. And I can go more into that at some later point. I've heard and used the analogy of kind of the immune system of the organization and how the immune system will, you know, shut down anything it doesn't recognize. And and I guess the adaptive space is sort of an immune system free zone, right? Where ideas at least given a bit of a chance to prove themselves before they're completely shut down by this organizational immune system. So why is it that organizations have this immune system? If ideas are so awesome and ideas, of course, are the source of all innovation, why are so many organizations designed to kind of shut down ideas before they get off the ground? Let's diagnose the problem before we start thinking about the solution. Yeah, I think most organizations start that way. They start off with great ideas, new ideas, flourishing, bouncing all around the organization. And as a small, more biologically organized organization, ideas flow readily and you decide which ones have fitness, which ones don't. And you invest in those that do and you don't invest in those that seem fruitless to you. Over time, what begins to happen, and my good friend Charles O'Reilly down at Stanford describes it as the success syndrome. Over time, what begins to happen is as you start to repeat success with an idea and you start to scale it, then deviating from you know that path begins to add risk, at least for that core feature or core component. So what happens is bureaucracy, hierarchy, rigor, standardization, all those things begin to set in across time. And it makes it harder and harder for us to accept new ideas. And virtually everything that's built up is to drive and scale success of the core handful of things. So the introduction of a new thing is noise. The introduction of a new thing adds risk you know, to the core thing that you're trying to do. And it's the innovator's dilemma that Clayton Christensen's talked about for years and researched for years. And that's what happens is I call them the antibodies, but the antibodies begin to kick in and they prematurely stifle ideas before they can bear new fruit. Now, I think here in Silicon Valley, and you spend time in Seattle and other places, 
words like bureaucracy and routine, they have a, have a very negative flavor to them. But of course, you know, in, they're good things, right? This is what you want when you get to a more mature organization. You want systems and you want efficiency and you want functionality and, and you don't want distractions and you don't want chaos. Charles Riley talks about explore and exploit and the trade-off between the two. And But you talk about the adaptive space as a, a third place, a place where it sits between this the systems of exploitation and the systems of exploration. Uh, and I think in some of your presentations, you talk about the, I don't know, the aircraft carrier and the speedboat. What exactly do you mean by third place? So it goes back to the research. And we went out, we looked at companies that have been adaptive, large companies that have reinvented themselves you know, over time. And of course, we looked at many companies that haven't been able to do that. You know the literature, you know the research. The latest I saw was from the year 2000 till today, or a year 2000 to the beginning of last year, actually, 52% of the Fortune 500 companies no longer exist. And it's an adapt or die world that we live in. And some organizations have figured out how to do that. Others haven't. And when we went through the research and we spent a comprehensive amount of time in a bunch of different companies, what we discovered were two things that were always true. One thing is you couldn't be a scaled entity without having a highly formulated operational system. Now, that's the formal processes and systems that pay the bills. When I was at General Motors, I called that trucks out the back door. Like we want to ship a lot of trucks out the back door and those trucks pay the bills. This was a little bit more of a surprise. Every organization we reviewed also had entrepreneurial pockets. These small, sometimes speedboat activities, sometimes formal, sometimes informal, but that's where new ideas manifested. So every organization in Charles's words had both explore and exploit embedded inside of the organizations, even those that weren't adaptive. But it was only those organizations, which was a small subset of you know, the initial population that we looked at, that had that third dimension, the, the third space, if you will. Called, later, we called it adaptive space, which is like the bridge between the two. And I oftentimes put it in this context. If you go talk to a bunch of entrepreneurs, especially in the Valley, what you get is you start to talk about them, their ideas and what they need to do to get their ideas adopted. And you start to get this like system rage. You know, if only the bureaucracy wasn't here, if only the formality wasn't here, if only we didn't have to think about things like legal reviews and those types of things, we could get our idea up and running. But the reality is this is a necessary, in some cases, evil or benefit, this being the operational system. So what we realized was the companies that were adaptive recognized the tension between those two was in fact the core element of driving adaptation constantly ushering in new ideas, but figuring out quickly how to scale those ideas through existing operational systems or with existing customer bases. And the companies that figured out how to really navigate that terrain with adaptive space in our language were the ones that were able to repeat success in different life cycles and different product cycles and so on. So just as important as facilitating connections between these two things, you also have to maintain some separation, right? Is it possible to just have explore and exploit taking place in the same places with the same people and everybody has a split through their brain where half the time they're doing the exploitation, half the time doing the exploration? Or is, there, is it important to keep these things apart somewhat? It's a really nuanced question. I love the question. And the answer is it might be possible to do both, but it's rarely possible once an organization has grown to scale. I think startups try to do both, right? Here at Amazon, I see a lot of times where we're doing both in the same population, in the same group, but there are really cultural nuances that enable that that are unique. It's very rare that happens. And in a more mature company like a General Motors or you know, pick any other company that you know, you do have to, I call it innovation on the edge. Like you do have to navigate away from the antibodies and do some innovation on the edge. But and in the early days, those bridge connections protect that entity. They sort of keep the antibodies at bay and they sort of protect that thing until it gets to what I'll call minimum viable product. Oftentimes we start to attack an idea before we even know if the idea has merit. And in the early days, the brokers that I talk about in the book or the bridge folks, what they do is they protect that incubation process. But later in the process, and most companies do incubation and acceleration, but what they miss is the second step, which is they need to pull that thing, those speedboats back in 
so that they can quickly be skilled. And the brokers or those bridge connections over time recognize when this thing is ready, it's hit minimum viable product. Now we need to take it to minimum viable operation. That requires new engagement with now all of a sudden, where do you get marketing support? Where do you get legal reviews? Where do you get durability reviews to manufacture or scale something from a sales standpoint? Backend platform, all those things matter immensely in that second motion. And that's where the bridge people really start to pull that thing back in. And that's really where adaptive space flourishes. In the early days, it's about protecting an entity so that it can stand itself up. And in the later days, it's about pulling that entity back in so it can become part of the new normal and quickly scale on the platform of the operational systems. Yeah, when you came to speak in my class a couple of years ago, you talked about how General Motors was very intentional about how they incorporated the cruise acquisition into the parent company. And this intentionality was not only about designing processes and roles and reporting lines, but also making sure that you had the right people in the roles that would facilitate this incorporation of ideas. Can organizations be very intentional about creating this adaptive space? Are there processes that they can put in place? Are there organizational design initiatives that they can put in place? Or is it simply a matter of making sure that you have the right people driving these processes? And we'll talk about the different types of people, the characters that you've created for your book. I think the answer is you need a little bit of both. You need, and social connections matter immensely. Like if I were to tell you the research, what we were looking for were new forms of leadership. We went into this whole body of research thinking about, you know, what does a new form of modern leadership look like? What we discovered was it's all about connectivity. It's all about social architectures. It's all about social arrangements and how you think of an organization as a network as opposed to a set of structures and processes. And if you flip the lens for a moment and you start to think about all the latent potential that exists inside an organization, then you can start to think about different social arrangements to do exactly what you just described, Greg. So in the early days, a cruise is a perfect example. Cruise, for the listeners, cruise was a self-driving startup in the Valley that was purchased by General Motors probably five, six years ago. I've got I've to remember when it was purchased but five or six years ago. And cruise automation was, again, its own self-entity. General Motors recognized that you could probably move faster on the edge than you could if you were inventing self-driving technology inside of the core of the business. But what they also realized, and I think this was the piece that was super critical when we sort of ushered in, was you need to create these bridging mechanisms in the very early days. So what Cruise was basically doing was left alone to continue to operate as a startup, using agile methodologies, using Scrum and other methodologies to quickly move to build minimum viable product. And in essence, in just 18 months, they created four generations of self-driving technology moving super fast because speed matters disproportionately there. But over time, so you can, is the answer, usher that in. But the next motion of how do you build the bridging mechanisms so that you can do that at scale, you can manufacture self-driving vehicles in a traditional manufacturing facility, that required a different motion. And it does, it requires new architecture, social architectures, and it also requires being super deliberate about the people you're placing in each of those individual areas. Now, you you talk about social capital and how it differs from human capital. And I think the HR function or the talent management function, as we think about it, is generally concerned with identifying kind of individual roles and individual talent portfolios that you want to slot into particular positions. And I think you're emphasizing that that's really not the right way to approach it. You have to think about social capital and how do you construct these collectivities or these networks or these connections Could you talk about that research a little bit and also talk about this whole idea of how you can use network analysis to kind of really understand how a company works in practice as opposed to works in theory? I really love how you can use data to see that the org chart is not really, you know, what's really going on inside an organization. Human capital, you know, I'm in the talent space. So human capital continues to matter for me. Like we've got to bring really smart people into our organizations 
But human capital stops by saying, let's bring the best people in or let's develop people so they can be the best. Social capital adds another dimension to it and says, we need to get the best out of our people as well. Like if I just share some stories, like we all know that person who's really smart, maybe the wisest person in the room, and they need to let you know that they're the wisest person in the room. And they start to tell you how they're the smartest person in the room. And every time you ask a question, they've got the first answer and it's always the best answer. And then after a while, your eyes glaze over and it becomes, well, what, 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 what? You stop listening to them. Chances are they probably are really smart. But the fact that they've got themselves marginalized in such a way that their social capital position is on the edge of the network mitigates their ability to contribute. So what, what I'm really saying with social capital and really adaptive space is about unleashing you know, the latent potential in organizations by thinking about social structures. What you end up finding out is we've got a lot of latent potential in organizations. And remember, I said in the research that it was never an idea problem. Every organization had ideas, many, and we could tell all kinds of stories, Kodak being the quintessential, they invented their own demise, but they weren't able to leverage it because it was in a social capital way stored on, on the margins of the business. And what I'm suggesting is if you really want to get the most out of your human capital, the next motion is to start thinking about social capital and how do you get people connected? And then absolutely, Greg, you can measure that. For example, the book talks about different types of connections different types of architectures. There's times where you need to be discovering that requires bridge connections. And if you've got bridge connections, we can measure that we're able to generate as much as 25% more insights through that design than if we're building something. There are other times where you need to put something into the world and like Cruise, build this minimum viable product. And that requires rapid cycle iterations. And the small two pizza teams are able to move 10x faster. If you create that type of social architecture, the first one prohibits your ability to build. But the second one limits your ability to discover. So the combination of those, along with the third being diffusing or scaling, which helps you to get amped up or, or scaling up to 4X, the combination of those things can be measured in the way that you look at social, basically organizational network analysis and the way you map out those connections that exist inside your organization. So I like how, you know, Laszlo Bach has popularized the whole idea of people operations. I feel like we, we really need something called idea operations. How do we think about creating a, a workflow and a, a production process and a value chain where the raw materials of good ideas can be assembled and then produced at scale? And so you use this sequence, introduce, develop, and spread. And you say that there are these three kind of, I don't know, would you call them personality types or leadership styles or relationship vectors that you call brokers? connectors and energizers, and then you also have the, these challengers. Are these distinct leadership styles or are they distinctive roles that people might have in this idea production process? It's a great question. I would say it's a combination of the two. So you think of it this way, a broker and a central connector are on a continuum, and it's how you show up in the network. So that's a network position. So if I'm a bridge person, I'm connecting two teams to one another, or I'm connecting to an outside client, you know, to an internal account team, I would quote unquote be a broker. If I'm in the center of a smaller team, then I'm a central connector and you cannot be both at the same time in the same network. So that's network position. Now in different networks, I'm oftentimes challenged on my last sentence. So I just want to add a, a caveat. If you're talking about different networks, you could be a broker in one network and a central connector in a different network. But at any given point in time, you're one or the other. That's your network position. Greg, your network disposition is how you show up in that network. And that's on another continuum, you know, sort of a challenger or an energizer tends to amp up other people's ideas. Wayne Baker and Rob Kras have done some tremendous work around energizers and an energizer can create 4X lift in a business around somebody else's ideas. So if you have a great idea and I'd be an energizer, you know, chances are, I would really amp up your idea and share it with other people. And energizers are really great for diffusion of ideas. Challengers, on the other hand, really challenge the merit of your idea. They challenge whether or not this idea makes sense to the business. And what I want is a lot of energy on the front edge until that idea is scaled and really connected and some challenging before I actually go live to market because I want to pressure test that idea. And when you think of the combination of those four different roles inside of an organization, what you're able to do is usher in 
the idea channels that you had described before of when do you discover, how do you develop, and how do you quickly diffuse those ideas to get scale. I'm just wondering if these th- things are going to show up in job descriptions. You log on to LinkedIn or Indeed and they say, you know, we're, we're looking for a broker or we're looking for an energizer, right? You know, when I was in coming out of school a long time ago, people were saying, oh, we want a team player and a self-starter. You know, they had these key terms. I think in the future, it's going to be like, we want an energizer. We want a connector. We want a challenger. And you can put it on your CV. Funny story. I, I'll share this story. I, you know, of course, I interview for these things as I do it. Remember LinkedIn used to have LinkedIn. It used to be called InMaps. And I don't know if we'll run one of these. It's They decommissioned this service, sadly for me. But what you would be able to do is you'd be able to look at someone's LinkedIn network and you could run a network diagram through LinkedIn and you could tell quite quickly whether or not they belong to one organization or they have access to a bunch of different organizations. So I used to, maybe this is why they decommissioned it. I used to ask individuals to run their LinkedIn. I teach this in classes all the time, but even in interview processes, if I were looking for a broker, I would want to see that they were connected to a bunch of different groups, a bunch of different organizations. So I think, yeah, we're going to see more and more of us thinking about what do we need this person to do and what is their social network that they're bringing with them in order to elevate you know, their ability to be able to exercise that task. I want to start with this idea of the broker, because I was very attracted to this concept, particularly because you were talking about how they are the silo busters and the name of this podcast is unsiloed. And you talk about kind of Steve Jobs as really a silo buster, as a broker. I don't think people think of a CEO as being a a broker all the time. What does it mean to be a broker? So in the book, I share Steve Jobs' network, patent network, and it's pretty interesting. Steve Jobs didn't have the most number of connections inside of Apple. No, I, I don't have access to his outside network, but as you listen to the stories, you know he certainly operated this way in the Valley. Mm-hmm. He was a consummate broker. He was not the most centrally connected person inside of Apple's patent network, but he had the most diverse set of networks. In other words, he had the most set of connections across different teams. What that positions him, Ron Burt has done a ton of work on brokerage, Ron Burt at University of Chicago. And what he says is a broker has three competitive advantages. You know, they have early access to novel information. They have access to diverse sets of information and they have control over the diffusion of that information. And Steve Jobs epitomized those things. Oftentimes I ask people to describe Steve Jobs and they say, you know, brilliant innovator, super intuitive, very creative. And sometimes you'll get the downside, very fierce, a big challenger. And I would say that those were all human capital descriptors. If you look at Steve Jobs' social capital quotient, he is basically the consummate broker. And he was able to decide how to connect this dot to that dot, his famous quote being connecting the dots backwards in order to usher in new things. And he also did that externally by constantly staying connected to big thinkers in such a way that he could get early signal or novel signal from what was happening in the marketplace. So I would argue that if you believe in this theory, Steve Jobs' real competitive advantage was his network. And what he was able to do was really leverage his network to do a considerable amount of the work for him. And those other things, I'm not arguing that those human capital traits are incorrect. I just don't know which came before which. And I think it's the combination of thinking about social capital equity that really can accentuate an individual. Yeah, I think it's important that there's this connection across teams and across different functional areas and across different areas of expertise. So how would you distinguish the brokers from the connectors, which is the next group of of people, the folks who do the development of these ideas? So the central connectors are the ones that are at the center of the network. They do have the most connections, generally speaking. Usually they have the most connections in a concentrated portion of that network. And they tend to be the ones that are highly trusted, super respected. Rob Cross would tell you that three to five percent of the people as central connectors provide 95 percent of the value to the network or at least that portion of the network they're not so great at bringing in new ideas but they're really good at building ideas they're really good at hitting minimum viable product they're really good at 
you know, building these ideas quickly and wrap in rapid motion, especially if you start to add in some of the agile theory around it. And the reason they can do that is because they're so deeply trusted. In the book, I actually talk about, I sometimes get frustrated with myself because I talk about leaders a lot in the book because you have access to their stories and their information. I also talked about a lot of individual contributors in the book that were brokers and central connectors. So you don't have to be a leader for any of these. But the central connector I talked about in the book was Thomas Edison is considered to be one of the greatest inventors in, you know, certainly American history. The reality is you rarely hear about his central band of muckers, which were his lab individuals who in Menlo Labs, small ragtag team of people that he was the central connector of that were constant. They were the first agile team in modern history that were rapidly iterating on new inventions day after day. And that happened because they had this huge amount of trust with each other and they could be in flow. Like they knew who to go to because they knew that if you really wanted to understand something around mechanical features, you went to Charles Batchelor who understood that. And they each had this sort of core skill and they were able to rapidly move in a sense of flow and Edison was the one that was in the center of that, that constantly challenged the team you know, to iterate and experiment, to develop, in many cases, the first working prototype of things like the light bulb and certainly electrical distribution and many of the other inventions. I think there were 400 patents in about eight years that came out of Menlo Labs and just breakthrough inventions during that same period of time using this you know, ragtag team of muckers to constantly invent and build. Now, these are very human roles, and these are people that are creating connections. These are people that are bridging gaps. What's the role of technology here? I mean, when I think about idea exchanges, I can't help but think of financial markets because that's my background and training. And until fairly recently, most fixed income trading was done by humans with phones. You have a phone in one ear and a phone in another ear with the cords hanging out. I don't know if you remember seeing the pictures and you'd basically be, this guy wants a bond, this guy is selling a bond and you'd put them together. And of course, all of that is now being automated, right? You have switchboards that are electronic that are matching order flow. Can we think about automating some of this process of matching people together, matching ideas together, using some kind of internal news feed or algorithm to try to facilitate connections? Why do we still need to have humans at the center of these processes? I think we can. And I think we, you know, even just something like AI and ML, as technology evolves, even the creative processes could be automated. I guess there are two ways I would think about this. I think of technology as an enabler for this process. I don't think it can supplement it. And I think part of that is because of who we are as human creatures. Can it? Probably someday. Will it? I don't know. I think like we are by nature, we create. By nature, we build. By nature, we want to connect. We are social beings at our core and we want to connect with other people. Serendipity flows across those connections. And I don't know that technology will, even if it could supplant that, first of all, I don't think we're ready for technology, especially in the creative side to supplant it. But even if it could, I don't know if we as human beings will allow it to happen. But also serendipity is like this really outrageous thing. Like, how do you know to connect this to that in order to create yet a third thing? So I think technology plays a very big role. Obviously at Amazon, we I talk technology every day in AWS. I think it will continue to play an enormous role I think it will level the playing field for especially smaller organizations to get access to things that large organizations have. But I don't think it, at the end of the day, individuals have to interact with individuals. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the virtual world right now. We, we can talk about virtual. It feels to me like we fast forwarded the future work five to 10 years in this last year. And I think what we learned a lot about is the importance of human connection and the essential nature of us to connect in different ways to continue to create and build things. And technology will only enable that, but I don't think it will surplant it. Now, even before you joined uh, AWS, in the book, you talk about kind of Amazon's famous two pizza team 
model. And you can glancingly refer to APIs. I'm a big proponent of kind of API-centric business organization. But the two-pizza team model is not a new thing. You talk about Navy SEALs and, and how they operate and how they facilitate agility. What is it about these small teams and what do you need to do in order to create small teams and allow things to... I, I remember I, I was talking to a large automotive company, not your old automotive, but a European automotive company, and they had teams with 500 people on them. And I just kept thinking, these guys are never going to go anywhere. They're never going to go autonomous. They're never going to go electric. They're just stuck. How does this work in practice? And how can organizations like move from a more kind of waterfall business organization to something that's more agile? Yeah, speed matters disproportionately. So when you're in the development process, speed matters disproportionately. You heard a little bit of that in the cruise story. The faster you can get, no one has invented the future yet. So the faster you can get there and get signal from the market or signal from potential customers, the sooner you can course correct, the faster you can build something else. Two pizza teams enable you to move super fast. First of all, because you've got flow, as I've already mentioned, the Navy SEALs are a perfect illustration of this. It's oftentimes I've had the privilege of being in San Diego and working slightly with the SEALs on some network stuff. And the thing about the SEALs is we think that they're training all the time, which they are. You know, most everybody knows that a Navy SEAL would, they go through six month rotations and 18 months of that is training. And then six months in the field, then they start the whole training process over again. Again, going through six months of different types of training. And we think of that as being super disciplined, creating almost like this mental agility to be able to deal with any unpredicted circumstance. But the truth is what they're really doing is building trust across the team. And what they're doing with building trust is everyone knows where everyone else is. Everyone knows what everybody else's skills are. They can almost intuit that in motion. And what that increases is speed. 10x faster in these small two pizza teams, the agile literature tells us. And what that means is you can iterate much more rapidly and you can get stuff to market sooner. But there are some caveats. Like one of the things that is special about two pizza teams is they are singularly purposed. They've got one mission and only one mission. They're focused on that core feature, that core attribute, whatever it happens to be. And they're iterating on that thing and that thing alone. Once they've gotten it right, then maybe you dissolve that team and they go work on other things. But you know what I see in these teams, like a traditional R&D group, unlike a set of two pizza teams that are working on something, any given human being inside of an R&D, a traditional R&D organization may be working on three or four things at any given point in time. And what they're really doing is hedging their bets. They're deciding like, if A doesn't take off, I've at least got B to work on. But what comes, it's a tax comes with that. And the tax is it slows you down. Where with the two pizza team, you quickly get to the point where you have tested, will this idea stand up? And if it doesn't, you shut it down and you move on to the next thing and move the team somewhere else. You never get that. You tend not to get that in the large groups. 500 is enormous. But even if we were to say 50 or 100, you tend not to get the sunsetting of these ideas because you don't have the same amount of pressure and velocity in the system and with the same milestone. So speed matters disproportionately and you do that better in small teams than in large teams. So this idea of a single threaded team, a uh, small two-piece team, this you don't have to be a software company to do this. You don't have to be all about the APIs. You could be a restaurant and a shoemaker in Pakistan and still derive some of the benefits of this organizational form, right? 100%. And I sometimes use API more metaphorically than Literally, in this case, small two pizza teams in an HR organization or a marketing organization where there are three or four teams working on three or four separate things that synchronize at the end of the day and come together will get you to the mission 10x faster than if you have a broader function working on a set of activities. And so what you're trying to do is increase velocity. The APIs metaphorically are the synchronization piece that bring those individual pieces together so that they work together combined. And that works in any function. And you, if you want speed, it's a much better design feature than the more traditional sort of structured organization. So let's talk about these energizers, the promoters, the, the diffusers, the scalers. Are these people that, that have to be in a leadership role or are they people that can be at lower levels in the organization? I mean, you mentioned like Herb Kelleher and the CEOs that are all very inspiring. I was talking to Jay Barney, who's a management professor at, at Utah, and he was 
saying that more and more he's interested in how leaders are able to make people in the organization feel loved and feel cared for and feel this sense of psychological enthusiasm and safety and so that the kind of fight or flight response is is suppressed. Is that really, is the role of energizers to kind of get people to stop thinking about what could go wrong and rather start thinking about what could go right? Yeah. At a certain stage, yes. At some point, I want to know what's going to go wrong as well. It's just, if you start talking about what could go wrong too early, you never get to what could be right. And you know, so the energizers early on matter immensely. Yes, I talk about a few leaders in the book. And, and again, I do that in every section. But the reality is individual contributors can light up a network as much, if not even more in some cases, as a leader can. And the reason is a leader has to manage all aspects of a business. A leader has to energize, but a leader also has to be concerned about risk and how things go to market. My favorite story is one person, and this is in, inside General Motors, I was able to measure this on the network, one person uniquely positioned as an extraordinary engineer, extraordinary energizer, she was an engineer, but also as a broker, was able to light up a 31% of a 3,000 person network just based on her conviction about an idea and her network position as a broker. And one individual contributor was able to light up 31% of the network, which means amplify those ideas. It was actually someone else's ideas, not hers, and amplify them across that organization in an emergent, bottoms-up manner. So if you can catch that energy early on in the product lifecycle, what you're able to do is you're able to connect it to different parts of the business to make it better so that whenever it finally is challenged, which it will need to be, it's much better suited to stand up against that challenge because you've connected on across the broader part of the organization. My favorite story is one of the things we used to do is we used to open up a movie theater and do these shark pitch tanks where people come up and they spend four or five minutes, that's it, using a Pecha Kuchu style of you know, presenting an idea from the front of an auditorium. And most every company does that. So there's nothing special about that process. But what we did was it was an old movie theater inside the Rensen in Detroit. What we did was we invited, there were 350 seats, we invited 350 energizers into the audience. So those energizers just listened for an hour about all these ideas. Immediately after the event, we called this event Tipping Forward, immediately after the event, these inventors who had presented their ideas, along with maybe another 30 or 40 who were outside, you know, opened up the foyer and we had almost like a science fair where people had their working prototypes of their minimum viable product. But the difference was 350 energizers who are now super revved up about this idea were connecting idea A to idea B. And what they were doing was they were really leveraging or seeding the network to get their idea amped up in a dramatic way. Just through that one event, we were able to track 30 new products, 30 new solutions, not always a product, that amped up and, and was really catalyzed by simply bringing the energizers in at a certain portion in the development life cycle. Now, this fourth kind of uh, uh, archetype that you mentioned is the challenger. And you put a kind of a unique spin on this, right? So here at Berkeley Haas, we have a slogan, which is question the status quo. And I think you mentioned the 10th man in Israel. And so I always think of this as somebody who's questioning the existing ways of doing things. But you also say that, no, you need a challenger to challenge the new stuff, right? So this is like the naysayers, right? The naysayers are usually the bad people, but you're saying that you need like stress testers. You need naysayers. You need people who are going to interrogate these ideas and really you know, fine-tune them. This is not a very popular role. The court jester in King Lear, in some versions, winds up dead and packed into a crate. What is this an official role that you want to have in every team, in every organization? I think it works best when it's embedded in the culture and not the individual, if I'm being honest. like I, There are people that are predisposed to being able to challenge your idea. By the way, this is a very nuanced thing that I'm about to say. But it, a challenger focuses on the idea, not the person. The difference between an energy vampire, one that takes all the energy and sucks it onto the room, and a challenger is a challenger goes after the idea, an energy vampire goes after the person, and they just bring every person around them down. Rob calls it the black hole, the vortex, where all energy is sucked up and everyone loses as a result where, of it. Where good I, ideas go to die. That's what good I ideas like go to die. die for sure. I want to be very clear that a challenger has your best interests in at hand, but their job is to test the fitness of an idea. 
Their job is to ensure that this idea is marketable, that this idea has value, that it's worthy of investment. So yeah, there are people who are really strong challengers and you want them to play a role later in the process. And one of the ways you do that is you think about the different positions that need to be challenging. Someone from finance needs to challenge the merit of a business case or someone from marketing needs to challenge the expenses of rolling on a marketing campaign. But the where it really works well is when it's embedded in the culture. You know, I talk about W.L. Gore and Associates and they've got this framework where they have these poster sessions and inventors build things and they bring the prototypes and the posters and they bring it into a room where the whole primary intent is for people to poke holes in it to test its fitness so that they can decide which of these ideas of maybe 10 make the most merit to be invested in. But that then challenger or that process then pivots and says, we're gonna invest in this and help you make it better, not just criticize you and leave you to your own demise to decide how to proceed. So yeah, so this is not about naysayers. This is about stress testers and idea sharpeners. I like to think of idea sharpeners or people that can help increase the probability of success by anticipating some of the the imperfections at the pass. You know, later in the book, you talk about what can organizations do, right? And you've got some wonderful, I think, suggestions and you use some very good metaphors. The ones that I really like are go take a look at the tidal pools, right? And the tidal pool, what are, where'd you come up with that? What are the tidal pools? So I tried to pull out from all over for the book and this concept of tidal pools, which is the edge of tooth or savannas or whatever, if you just think about biology and the way different terrains come together, they're the most fertile spots in on land, like in, in the world. So these tidal pools that are constantly under tension, life is very fragile in a tidal pool. You constantly you know, have pools of water coming in and out, the currents coming in, the weather conditions are fierce, but it's also the place where life begins. These sort of at the edge of two trains or the edge of two networks in, in a business world, that's where new ideas are sparked. That's where new ideas are discovered. I write this section about going to the edge. And one of the things we know that if you want something different, staying inside the blob or working with the antibodies, you're never going to come up with a new set of ideas. But if you navigate to the edge or you work in the tidal pools where different things are coming together, what you get is variety. And the first thing variety brings you is new ideas, new perspectives, and new approaches to do something different. Yeah. And then I was wondering just to go back to the other, like performance evaluation, right? All these things that you're talking about, they don't fit in with the normal performance evaluation. So you're trying to fit at the end of the year, you're like, okay, what did Michael do for us? And at the end of the day, well, how much revenue did Michael bring in? And it's like, well, you know, he was an energizer and he had all these connections and he helped introduce this person to that person. And he challenged this idea, but how do you put a number on that? And a lot of organizations, they not only use KPIs for business units, but for you know individuals. Do we need to completely rethink our performance evaluation process? Do we have to just devote more resources to it, source information from different places? Is there a way that we can gather data on the impact that people can have in the idea generation diffusion process? Yeah, you can't get by as an HR guy without hearing a performance management question in interviews. So I appreciate that, Greg. I think the answer is absolutely. Most of our solutions were invented and created to scale the operational system. The one size fits all model doesn't work. It doesn't enable what I'm describing right now. So the, the short answer to your question is absolutely. I think we need to become at least bimodal. Like what I'm doing for the growth side of the business requires a whole different set of mechanisms systems and processes versus what I'm doing for the core of the process. And I oftentimes even say maybe even trimodal because there's the third dimension, the adaptive space or the bridges that maybe require a little bit of both. And I think our solutions are gonna have to become much more eloquent in the way that we think about enabling this set of activities for an organization. If you apply a one size fits all central system it is most likely going to prematurely stifle ideas on the front end because ideas in in the nature of the operational system are waste. Ideas are variance. Ideas are risk. And I don't think that a traditional system will reward you for those. But if you think about different, like I oftentimes say we need two talent management systems, the way we evaluate people to operate here versus the way we evaluate people and select people to operate here are two radically different mindsets. So I think as organizations get better at practice and adaptive space, they're also going to get better at choosing 
the central systems or the support systems, better stated, that enable the different parts of that idea life cycle. Now, I want to ask you about two trends that are happening right now, one of which preceded the pandemic and one of which has accelerated during the pandemic. And the original, the first one is we all talk about how the average life expectancy of an employee in Silicon Valley is now like 14 months. Now, I think that's deceptive because we're continuing, they're growing so fast and they're adding employees. But still, a lot of the things you're talking about, social capital, social capital, intra-organizational social capital requires some time and some experience and team formation and trust development and so forth. And then as soon as that's all starting to congeal, that's when people rotate out and move to a different company. How does this, you know, we think of that as a sign of innovation, but in fact, that could be an obstacle to innovation. How do companies deal with that? Do they just lean on more external networks than internal networks? I think it's a challenge, Greg. I think as people are moving in and out, both a challenge and an opportunity and benefit. So Silicon Valley is so unique that it's hard to frame up the response to your question. It is true that people move in and out of organizations rather rapidly, but the boundaries of the network are now at the ecosystem level. So every time somebody leaves, somebody else comes in and they're bringing new insights in. Enough of a core tends to stay inside of an organization that you get both the benefits of discovery and teams, small two pizza teams building. So you get the benefits of building as well. But over time, yes, that's a challenge. You've got to think about Ron Burke calls this oscillation, oscillating back and forth between brokerage and closure or brokerage and being a central connector, it actually adds value to the individual. You as an individual are worth as much as six times more if you've got the ability to discover new ideas and leverage a network from much broader than your current team, but you've got deep trust to be able to build something in your team. So I think we can actually use some of that mobility in and out of an organization to our benefit. Now, the question is, what's the break point? And if you've got too much movement out, and you don't have enough trust building inside of a entrepreneurial pocket, then what you lose is you lose speed. You lose some of the things that I was describing with the Navy SEALs. So it's a delicate balance. I actually get more concerned about the opposite, if I'm honest with you, insularity. And I get more concerned about an organization where people have been there for 20, 30 years. That's a uni university. It's a university for you. <laughs> yeah, we, we could spend the rest of the podcast on universities, Greg. But what you get is you get less discovery, right? You get, and all of a sudden, risk becomes harder and your reputation is more important to you and your willingness to take a risk is harder. So I actually am much more concerned about not having enough flow than having too much flow. Now, the virtual question is a whole different domain. And like I've been spending a ton of my time in the last year in this virtual world. And, and it's interesting. If I were to really boil down social capital, I would put it into two buckets. You've heard me talk a little bit about this in science terms, in academic terms, there's bridging social capital and there's bonding social capital, brokers versus central connectors. In the early days of going virtual, we saw just a radical erosion in brokerage connections, 30% drop off in your cross-team connections in, in about a three to four month window. I mean, it was it just dropped off the cliff. And this is organizations at large that we've been studying. What's happened more recently is the opposite. Some of those connections have begun to pick up or at least have stabilized at about the 25 to 30% drop-off range for bonding or I'm sorry, for bridging social capital. What we're starting to see now are intact teams are beginning to break apart. So I think as we go longer and longer, your distant connections are going to go first. And Ron Burt did some great work on this as well. You'll lose nine out of 10 of your newly forged bridge connections within the first year. That very much showed up in the network in the virtual world. And think about it, right? Like our ability to connect with distant teams is far more complex in a virtual world. But over time, we've even lost connectivity within team. And that's dropped off somewhere between 15 and 20% over the last six months. So I think what we're beginning to understand, Greg, is that virtual is really good for some things. We've become predominantly more productive as we look at this means. But where I'm really concerned is on the idea generation and the idea diffusion side of the equation. So I think what we're going to be doing next is experimenting with new models that are some sort of hybrid, that are constantly thinking about what are the motions of when I need to bring people back to face-to-face -face interactions, where they influence. Sandy Pentland says that 80% of our influencing happens face to face. If I got to influence someone to make a new decision, I want to see them eyeball to eyeball. And this is only a loose approximation, this being video, 
for what that shows up like whenever we're live. So that's what's happened in this virtual world. And that's not even to consider what happens when a new human being joins in a virtual world. The reality, there have been some really cool studies on this. And it basically requires, you can build social capital in a virtual world, but it takes four times the number of interactions than what it would take live face to face. So going for the coffee, having a beer after work, the hallway conversations, those things matter immensely. And those are the things that we have lost most in this you know, short period of time where we have been working virtually. So last question, you talk about organizations that do this right. And then there's obviously organizations that don't. As an individual contributor in the organization, not a CEO, but somebody who's you know embedded in the organization, is there anything that they can do to try and move the organization in a direction that's more innovative? A lot of us have, have worked in large scale organizations that are not really optimized for innovation. And we sometimes get frustrated and realize that nobody's, nobody really wants to hear anything you have to say. How can you build it from the inside out and the bottom up rather than from the top down? Yeah. First of all, I think you have to do a large portion of this from outside in and bottoms up where it doesn't stick. It doesn't work long-term. I'd like to think that, first of all, I wrote the book to think about what is a mental model to think about this differently, but then how do we empower individual human beings to do some things differently. So the last set of principles are really about that. It's really about how can any individual contributor learn? If you want to learn something new, you go to the edge. You, you go find that title pool. You go to a conference. You, you, know, you go read something different. You come to a university and talk to a professor, talk, whatever that happens to be. Uh, then you want to bring it into the world. The first thing you want to do is here's the thing you don't do. This is the easiest way for me to answer your question. The worst thing to do is to present your new idea to a leader prematurely. Because if you think about it, leaders get new ideas every single day. And as a leader, I probably say I'm a hypocrite, by the way. What I teach and what I present and what I study versus how I act at times makes me a hypocrite. You know, I get new ideas every day. I can't say yes to every one of them. I've got to evaluate resources. I've got to make trade-off decisions. So I would say nine out of 10 times when you present an idea to a leader, they're going to say no. But if you go find a handful of individuals, find some friends, and you work on it, and you build it, and you prototype it, and you become more convicted about it. Like the other thing I'll say is, I probably have 10 new ideas a day. I'm one of those people that's constantly thinking about new ideas. By the end of the day, I'm maybe one of those 10, like I feel halfway convicted about one of those. By the end of the week, maybe you know of the five that I felt convicted by, maybe one is actually one that I continue to think about during the next week. So part of this is you got to do your own gut check. Is this something that I feel like I want to invest my own energy? And the best way to do that is to go find a handful of trusted friends, people that can help you to think about the idea positively and generate on the idea. Energizers, friends do that. I say follow energy next, like find out what signal you're getting from an interaction with another human being. If they're giving you the, you know, the dead stare, like what are you looking at? I get them a lot. Maybe that's not the best idea to engage in. But if you're getting you know, a lot of reinforcement, maybe that's an idea you can continue to invest in. And so I do think that there's this opportunity to do this in a very emergent manner. And I think that can happen naturally if leaders set some tone or provide some degree of freedom to enable it at the top. So that's how I tend to think about it is go to the ads, find a friend, follow the energy. And then eventually, whenever you really start to be convicted about this thing and you build it, and hopefully have prototyped something so that it's not just a figment of your imagination, but it's a real live prototype. Then you go try to pressure test it and bring it to a leader to try to get it resourced and supported. And if you're lucky, your network begins to do some of that work for you because it's now not just your idea, it's our collective idea. And it's much easier to influence and drive change adoption around the new concept if you've got critical mass or at least some larger group of people invested in it with you. Yeah, that's great insight. I think that's something we need to teach in our business school, which is not just to generate ideas, but really make those ideas live and flourish within the organizations. So Michael, really appreciate you joining us. And of course, you've guest spoken in quite a few classes, including mine here at, at Berkeley. This is the book, Adaptive Space. Any new books on the horizon by any chance? I've got some bouncing around in the mind and I found a few friends and we're playing around with the idea, but it's still manifesting itself, Greg. So thanks. We look forward to it. And I'm glad that you're a silo buster going from industry to academia and to publishing. So thanks again. I uh, hope to see you in person sometime soon, maybe down here in the Bay Area. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Appreciated the conversation. Lots of fun. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.